All right, well, you can turn over to the second chapter in the book of Haggai, the Old Testament prophet. And we're going to be looking at chapter 2 today. And we've seen the last uh, couple uh, weeks an introduction to this Old Testament prophet. And uh, we found that he uh, really came on the scene out of nowhere. We don't know anything about him since. And he uh, is uh, kind of a mystery. But we laid down a little bit of groundwork. And uh, last week, uh, we looked at, just in way of review, we looked at building God's house. And we looked at the entire first chapter of the book of Haggai. And, and we noted a couple different things last week. We noted that uh, the book of Haggai basically is broken up into four different messages on four or on three different dates. The last two messages were given on the same date. And so we, we noticed that he came on scene in a post-exilic uh, time period after they were out from Babylon. They, didn't, they, weren't, uh, they returned back to their homeland from Babylon captivity, and they were back in their homeland, and God raised up the prophet Haggai to encourage the people, to rebuke the people, and uh, we looked at that last week in chapter 1. And remember, they came out from 70 years being captive somewhere. And they'd been given their freedom. And as they came out, they were uh, discouraged because they spent 70 years without a temple. And in their culture and in their religion, the temple was the, the central place. And they didn't have it. They weren't allowed to have it. And ac- actually, after they came out, Cyrus, the Medo-Persian king allowed them to come out of Babylon, and he wrote a decree that they could go build their temple. And uh, they got back home, and they started building the temple. And lo and behold, um, one of the, uh, or a couple of the Samaritans, you can read about it in the book of Ezra, uh, wanted to be part of that too. And they said, no, we're just going to build the temple. And so they wrote some letters to the king and caused a big ruckus. And as a result, they were issued an edict to stop the build. And so they were kind of discouraged. And so here we are, 16 years later, they laid the foundation, they had the altar kind of in place, but that was about it. That's all the further they got before they faced opposition and quit. And so they were discouraged. And so here we are, 16 years later, and uh, God raises up this man, Haggai, to really, first of all, rebuke them. And we looked at this last week. We looked at a rebuke of pro- for procrastination, a reaping of poverty that they, they had, a reason for poverty. The reason for the poverty was because they, they were basically not doing what God had told them to do. And uh, the remedy was basically consider your ways. He says that three times in this short little book. Consider your ways. And the renewal of purpose is what we looked at last week. And so we wanted to make sure that we just leave off. We, I just want to read for you um, this text, but I want to begin in verses 14 of chapter 1 because this is really where we kind of left off last week and we see the Holy Spirit beginning his work in the hearts and lives of the people after Haggai brought the word of God to them. 
And so in verse 14, you can follow along, I'll read this text for us. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shetiel, king or governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. And that concluded the first message. Now, the second message starts in chapter 2. In the seventh month of the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shetiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say this, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the word, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. Verse 6, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations, so that the treasures of all the nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give, look at what it says, peace declares the Lord. So we have before us just nine verses that this second message proclaims. And we've seen that these messages take place on different days. And today's message if we're doing it modern-day equivalent, it would be October 17th, 520 B.C. And so they kind of heard what Haggai said, and there's a lot of commands that Haggai gave in the first chapter to these discouraged people. He kind of rebuked them. He said, consider your ways, consider your ways three times. He addressed their materialism. He addressed a bunch of different things. But now he's... Here at the second message, and the first message, you might say, was a message of rebuke. The second message is really a message of encouragement. A message of encouragement. And he wanted them to understand that God was still with them. And uh, that they, they shouldn't be so discouraged. Uh, sometimes encouragement has to follow a rebuke, doesn't it? It just does. I mean, if you're just always encouraging somebody and there's never any rebuke, there's never any correction, then the encouragement really doesn't mean a whole lot. Uh, I worked for a guy one time that he just never encouraged anybody, hardly ever, as a boss. Just didn't do it. And I remember one day he called me into the office, and uh, it's a warehouse job I had in between churches. He called me into the, the office, and I thought, oh, man, I got in trouble for something. I don't know what I even did, you know. And I go in there, and I'm standing in front of this guy, and he didn't even look at me. Didn't even, didn't even say, hey, how you doing? Nothing. He's just back there reading some paper. 
And I said, hey, you wanted to see me? And he's like, yeah, sit down. And I'm like, okay. So I sit down, and I'm just sitting there, and I'm waiting. And there's like this silence, you know. And is there something you want to share with me? Because I don't do well, like, in silent situations, as most of you know. I just, I'm not going to make noise, or something has to happen, you know. It's, and, and so I'm sitting there, and, and, and I said, is there something you wanted to say? Or, and he, hold on a second. And he's looking at this paper, like, just behind his desk, and... And, and all of a sudden, he just kind of goes like this with the paper, and he goes, I, I just want to let you know uh, you did a good job last week out there in the warehouse. <laughs> and I'm sitting there, I'm like, okay. Is that it? Yeah, that's it. Get back to work. Get back to work. Okay, okay. <laughs> and I walked out of there thinking that was the stupidest thing. I mean, it was just so weird. He didn't make eye nothing. He was just not very encouraging in the way he did it. But you know what? Those times came so far and few between that when it happened, I was like, wow. You know, so everybody's like, hey, what do you want? What do you want? You know, you got called in the office. Oh, he just said I did a good job last week, you know, filling some orders or whatever. I don't even know what we had to do. And it, it was just kind of a, you know, it was a positive thing. And see, sometimes the message of rebuke has to come before the message of encouragement. And that's basically what we see here. He issues a message of rebuke in the first chapter. But now we're in the second chapter, so you can kind of rest a little easy and know that today, hopefully, is going to be a little more encouraging than it was may have been last week. So uh, here, God raised up Haggai to raise up these people out of their idleness, out of their lethargy, and get them... Uh, kind of motivated a little bit to start building this temple again. It's laid there with the foundation and the altar, and that was it for 16 years. They stopped because a couple of Samaritans wrote a letter and, you know, caused a ruckus, and so they, they just got intimidated and they stopped. And so they thought, oh, okay. So they're discouraged. Haggai comes on the, on the scene and says, hey, what, what are you doing? You need to get back at doing what God has called you to do. And you just by reading verses 14 and 15, how the Lord stirred up the priest, he stirred up uh, Zerubbabel, and he stirred up Joshua, and he stirred up all the remnant of the people. It was the Spirit of God that did a work in their hearts. This isn't, and that's why this is a lasting, persevering change in these people. It's not something that Haggai just to get up there and give a rah-rah session, and then, you know, it was back to normal the next week. As we begin chapter 2, you can almost hear the chisels and the hammers and their tools, you know, their tool belts, and they're getting ready to go to work because that's what they've been motivated to do. So in chapter 2, we see that they're going to address this foundation that's been laying in rubble. They're going to clear away all the weeds and all the stuff that's grown up around it and, 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 and begin this work that started 16 years before. And they've had so many discouragements along the way. They had setbacks, one after another. But now they've heard the word of God, and they're saying, okay, now we're willing and we're ready to go. God's touched our hearts. The Spirit of God has stirred us up. The word of God has somehow breathed new life into their discouraged spirits, and they're ready to take on the task that God called them to do. They have their tools, they have their gifts, their talents. They're ready to go. They're ready to build the temple again. But believe it or not, <laughs> just as life is sometimes, less than a month after the work began on this temple, once more, it was interrupted. It was interrupted. It wasn't interrupted by enemies. And it wasn't interrupted by 
some guy coming in with some false religious teaching or whatever. But believe it or not, it was interrupted by three religious festivals. Three religious festivals. And you find them on Israel's calendar. Now, the month we're in right here is the month of Tishri on their calendar. It was the seventh month, the month of Tishri. Our month, it's September, October. There's not an exact translation over, but it's September, October. See, you have to understand, in the month of Tishri, they're ready to get their work going. (laughs) What happens? First feast happens, the Feast of Trumpets, on the first day of the month of Tishri. And then on the tenth day of the month, you have the Day of Atonement. See, these are all religious festivals that they have to participate in. And then on the, from the 15th day all the way to the 21st day of that month, there was what they called the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, I want you to be patient with me this morning as we kind of lay this groundwork because you have to understand this is where they find themselves. And just as the children of Judah were ready... They'd gotten over their discouragements and, you know, that the Samaritans caused years before. They got out of their captivity. Maybe they got over their misconceptions of biblical prophecy that we talked about last week. That they thought, well, God wasn't, you know, wasn't on God's calendar that we should start to build this temple yet. They got that all mixed up. They got over that. They're all ready to go. They got their chisels, they got their hammers, they got the stone, they got everything. And all of a sudden, these festivals interrupt their work. And I think the prophet, I know that God knew, and I think that he let Haggai know that if there was just one more interruption, these folks would be totally discouraged and distraught. Because... You know, like I do, when you're in the Christian life and sometimes things are going well, you're kind of going along pretty good. You're reading your Bible every day and you're, you're getting into prayer time. And, you know, everything just seems to be going pretty well. You're going to church, going to a group, you're just plugged in, you're serving. And then all of a sudden, what? Bang, out of nowhere, just out of nowhere, something comes across your path, an obstacle. A discouragement, a trial, a tribulation. It could be related to family. It could be related to personal issues. It could be related to health. It could be related to finances. Whatever lays across that path, you look at it and you, you begin to get disheartened. You begin to become discouraged. And Haggai knew that these people of Judah had been up against a lot of stuff. And they had really been discouraged now for 80-some years since the day they had gone into captivity. And because of that on this day, on the first, on the the last day of the feast of the month, Haggai comes and he steps in with this great message of encouragement for God's people. And it came right from the Lord. And it's the final day of the Feast of Tabernacles. In our calendar, it's the 17th of October. This is when he comes to bring this message. See, and you can just see God's providential hand in all this. The context and the background of the message of chapter 1 is so important because you remember, he had a captive audience. 
because the people were thinking about the temple because they'd come out of captivity. And they knew that years ago, that's when they, they lost the temple, and now there's an opportunity for them to rebuild it. And he comes just at the right time because the temple was in their head. And he begins to talk about the temple as it's laying there in ruins and how they're living in paneled houses. And he called them to reorder their priorities. In Leviticus chapter 23, in verses 34 to 44, you can read that on your own, but you have an account of what the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booze, as it's called, what it really is. It tells us what it is. It's also called the Feast of Ingathering. Uh, What it was, was the final religious celebration on Israel's calendar, on the religious calendar. They first commemorated the end of the autumn harvest, And then secondly, they commemorated the ingathering of crops. And then thirdly, it was a remembrance that for 40 years, the children of Israel, and this is important, were in the wilderness and that God looked after them and took care of them when they lived in these tents, these nomads traveling around out there for 40 years. Now, just to give you an idea what they did on this day, as far as a festival goes, what religious rituals that they went through, For seven days, the people lived in little booths. This is what they would do when it was the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. And they would decorate all these little booths. They would make up these little tents in their yards or whatever. And they decorate them with beautiful fruit from the harvest, noting God's provision. But every day of those seven days, there was this procession. And this procession would lead from the little village and all the people would follow to the Gion Spring, it's called, where the priest would fill this little golden pitcher with water. He'd just fill up a little golden pitcher with water from the spring, and he would return to God's temple, and there he would pour that water upon the altar. And what that signifies, it was a sign, it was an object lesson to them that God provided for them the water that they needed for 40 years out in the desert. And the festival ended and the people all gathered together and they had a great celebration and festive things and all that stuff. It was a great time of happiness. It was, you know, they rejoiced. All these things were going because they were counting, looking back on what God had done for them in his provision of this water. And so the priest, when he would go down and fill up this little thing and then come back and pour it on the altar, that was an object lesson of this is how God has provided for us. But I have to tell you, on this day, on October 17th, 520, when Haggai gave this message, it was still the last day of the feast. They still did the same things. They went to the Gion River, and, and there they, they did the same ritual of, of taking this pitcher. But there was no rejoicing. There was no happiness. The joy was missing. Why? Because they had no temple to go to. There was no temple. It was not a joyful festivity at all. As a matter of fact, their crops at this time were actually destroyed. They had nothing to celebrate. They came back, remember, to just a land laid waste. Their temple wasn't complete. And all they could do on this one occasion, all they could do, some of them, was remember when they were in their captivity. 
But there are also others that were a little older. And these older people could even remember when they came to Solomon's temple. Where there was this great joy and this great feast and festivities and all that would take place. A place where they could come and worship God and seek his face. I want to ask you this morning, are you a discouraged Christians? Are you like these Judeans here? They were discouraged. Every time they, they felt like they were getting somewhere, whether it was as a nation or with their God or with their temple, something came along to thwart it. Something came along and blocked their path. Let me ask you a question. Do you still find joy in our celebrations here as a body? When you come out on a Sunday morning, when you come to a prayer meeting, when you come to a group meeting, or when you're absent from a prayer meeting or a group meeting or a Sunday morning, or even when you come to the Lord's table, is that joy, that authentic God-given joy, Is it still there? Do you still have that celebratory spirit inside you? Or has the rejoicing gone out? Has the joy disappeared? Is it just a Sunday go to meeting time? Maybe because of disappointments? Maybe because of discouragements? Or is it like these Judeans who were looking back into their history, and some of them could look back 86 years when they were taken into captivity. But see, at that moment, they had a glorious temple. They had Solomon's temple. Magnificent place. But now they had nothing at all. They had no temple. And they were looking back to the good old days when all the nations came together to worship God in that beautiful place And God's glory was there. And there was real blessing. There was real joy. There was real salvation. There was real consecration. There was even revival there, perhaps. I'm going to ask you this morning, can you remember great days? Can you remember the good old days, as they're called? I'm sure there's some here today who can remember the great days of this church, here in this church, the great days of blessing. But when we look at a day in which we live today and we look back at those days, you may find yourself being discouraged. See, Haggai knew that his, these people here were thirsty, that these people were hungry, that these people... Weary in the desert, we're looking for satisfaction because of all their disappointments. Everything that had gone on. And so he comes, and like the pouring of water upon the altar in a temple, he brings this message to the people who don't have a temple. But it's like fresh water to their souls. It's the first thing he does here. first thing he does is found in our first point in verses 1 through 3. Verses 1 through 2 are the introduction, same thing they always say to the, before the message. 
But he says in verse 3, to all the remnant of the people there, he says, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? You see, this message that Haggai was bringing, the first point of the message was, you know what, you have a backward look. You're looking backward. You're looking back to God's old temple. God's leadership, Zerubbabel, Joshua, all the people that were living in difficult days, but they were remembering all of the good old days. They were all reminiscing back. Like we even do today. You can't blame them. You think back, maybe even in this church, if you were here long enough, I know I wasn't. Maybe you had great revivals. Maybe you had great crusades. I don't know what went on here. Maybe you had evangelists come. Maybe you had a great number of people being converted. See, these people were looking back. If you turn over to Ezra, chapter 3. Ezra, chapter 3. Back. Ezra and Nehemiah after Chronicles there. Ezra chapter 3. <clears throat> I told you last week that the book of Ezra has basically the historical background of the book of Haggai. So if you want to understand the book of Haggai, read the book of Ezra. But I I want to look at verse 12. And Ezra basically tells us of some people who, when they came out of these 70 years of captivity in Babylon. And in verse 12 of chapter 3, Ezra says this. But many of the priests and the Levites and the heads of the fathers' houses... Who's he talking about? The old men. (laughs) This kind of sums it up there. Who, uh, the old men who had seen the first house, the first temple he's talking about. It says, they wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. And then look at what it says at the end. Though many shouted aloud for joy. So you have two types of people here that came out of captivity in Babylon. There were those two types of people that as Haggai is delivering his message in chapter 2, these are the people who are listening. And there's two types of them. They're the young people who can't remember anything about the old days. No old temple that's not even in their memory. They weren't alive. And then there were the older people who can remember. See, and what Ezra is saying is this first house in all its glory. That's what they're remembering. But note the difference. When the older people can remember that first house in all its glory, what are they doing? It says they're weeping and they're crying aloud. But the young people are singing for joy. 
You stop and ask yourself, why do you think that is? See, immediately when the old people came out of captivity in Babylon for 70 years, they received this edict of King Cyrus to rebuild the temple, and their hopes were built up. They were excited. They were encouraged, and immediately they could remember Solomon's temple, and boy, we're going to rebuild this thing. And they envisioned the new temple as possessing all the glories that they had seen in Solomon's temple. That's what was in their head. But, you know, when they started building this thing, and when brick was put upon brick, and all the interior things were beginning to be put into the temple, and it was beginning to take form, and they started to see, to their amazement, but also to their disappointment, that this new temple was absolutely nothing compared to Solomon's temple. Nothing. Had no comparison. Everything they could remember about Solomon's temple wasn't in this new temple. And therefore, Haggai knew he anticipated their disappointment. And he wanted to let them know. He asked them three questions in verse 3. Three questions. The first one there, he says, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? Think about it. Many of these older folks who had been in captivity and even lived beyond that, before that, these old men and old women who were there, they were standing around listening to Haggai, and many of them had stood and they witnessed the beautiful temple of Solomon. They'd actually probably been in it. What was it like? Let me just describe a little bit can't even do it justice, but it's just a little bit of Solomon's temple. Imagine this. It was 90 feet long, 30 feet wide, 45 feet high. And it was striking because it was laid with white limestone. And there were cedars that were upon the walls. And you had this gold exterior And the entire interior of the temple was covered with cedar walls and the floorboards were pine, it says. And all of it was overlaid with gold. Amazing place. If you got to go into the holy place, it was 60 feet long and it was decorated on the walls with carved cherubim and palm trees and carved flowers, all sorts of things. And there were gold chains that covered across the doors leading to the holy place, to the holy of holies. And the holy place contained ten golden lampstands and ten golden tables of showbread. And if you had gone from the outer court of the temple into the holiest place, into the holy of holies, it was basically a 30-foot cube. That's how big it was. But it was all overlaid with gold. And there was two massive cherubims made of olive wood. And they were carved in gold extended the length of the the whole room just amazing and the wings outstretched themselves and their tips touched together on one side and the walls of the temple were decorated with beautiful carvings someone estimated years and years ago i mean we're probably talking in the 80s 70s 80s just the holy of holies just the expense of that Just a 30-foot cubic room. They figured it out back then in modern day, in the 80s or 70s, whenever this took place, to $20 million. $20 million. So put yourselves in these 
folks' shoes. This is all they could remember. And this great sight, this glorious temple and all its beauty as far as they could see, even though they thought God was working in building this new temple, this new temple faded into insignificance in comparison to the old one. Some of the differences between the new temple and Zerubbabel's temple, and these are key differences. The new temple didn't have the Ark of the Covenant. There was no Ark. Zerubbabel's temple, or the new temple, didn't have the holy fire. It didn't have the Shekinah glory of God that was there. Fourthly, it didn't have the spirit of prophecy, the Holy Spirit. It didn't have the Urim and the Thummim, the guidance of God himself, what they used to, to be led by God. None of those things were in this new temple. And so these older folks were looking at this, and they looked upon it, and they were just discouraged. And Haggai knew it. See, that's why he asked them these questions. Can any of you, any left among you that saw it, anybody here that saw the, the previous temple? I got a couple things here that I just dug up. And these are original blueprints of this plot before there was ever anything here. Isn't that amazing? Notice they're blue. (laughs) That's why they call them blueprints. This one's dated. Well, this is for the, uh, I guess, the extra rooms over there, but this is dated in 51. Thomas McAdam is the guy on this. He was, a, I guess, a nephew or a niece of the guy that came up with the process to make asphalt. That's why they call it McAdam. Pretty interesting. Very generous to our church. He's still generous to our church through a trust fund which is amazing. This is the original plans for the building over there, which was their church, our fellowship hall now. But I wanted to show you something that I found, and it's kind of in bad shape, but this is actually, it says the first plot plan (laughs) for this whole property. Nothing was even here. I mean, it's done like in crayon or colored pencil or whatever. Just amazing. I mean, this is probably back in, I don't know, 50, 1950, something like that. The church was started, I believe, in 46 or 47. And I'm thinking, when these people are coming up with these plans and, you know, they, they had started this brand new church here in Redwood City. Can you imagine the excitement? They're looking at this property, there's nothing here and saying, yeah, this is what it's going to look like one day. And that's just for the fellowship hall. Some of you may have been there. Some of you maybe remember this area before there was anything here. But he asked them, first of all, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? 
It's funny because people come to our church now and they'll say, why are there so many classrooms and everything? Why is that? Because one time they needed them. Those classrooms were filled with little kids. Some of you who are sitting here were those little kids, which is kind of amazing. Secondly, he asked him this question in verse 3. He says, how do you see it now? (laughs) You remember the old temple? Yeah. What do you think of the new one? Good question. How does that compare? They didn't even need to answer it. They knew. The new temple was purely, in their mind, inferior to the old temple. So he just states it there, kind of asking a rhetorical question at the end of verse 3. He says, is it as nothing in your eyes? If you were there that day when Haggai asked that question, I think all of them would have said, yeah, it's nothing. Look at this. Expect us to settle for this? Man, we were around when God really did a lot more than this. We have better memories of God working than just this crummy little temple you're trying to erect here. Do you expect us to take the second best in comparison? See, sometimes we can feel that way. Some people sitting here remember when maybe this church was full of people. And I'm sure, as you're still faithful to come, it's probably discouraging to you. Disappointing. See, how the work of God is perceived by us is very important. In fleshly eyes, things, in their eyes, they, things aren't going forward. I remember the good old days. That's where they're at. Nothing seems to be happening the same. Let me tell you something about memories. Memories can be encouraging but they can also be very, very discouraging. Memories can be encouraging, but they can also be very, very discouraging. You see, these children dwelt needlessly on past blessings. That's where their heads were. That's what they were focused on. They looked at the temple they were trying to, the new temple they were trying to put together there, and they said, that doesn't even compare. Words of discouragement. You know, that's Satan's subtle plan, beloved. That's exactly what he wants us to think. That's how he works. See, it seemed right for the Judeans to make much of this glorious past and this glorious temple that they once had. But it's also clear to us that Satan is trying to minimize 
what they're trying to do in obeying God and starting this new temple. Even though God is stirring in their hearts, Satan's coming in and he's saying, ah, this is nothing compared to what God's done before. I'm not even going to be part of it. Even though the work of revival was beginning in the people's hearts, Satan was there to cool it off. In Ezra chapter 14, it says, Satan saw that the, the people were beginning to be stirred, or in, in, excuse me, I'm sorry, in chapter 1, verse 14 of Haggai, Satan saw that the, the Spirit of God began to stir the people, and they began to, you know, he kind of speaks in their ear, you know, you remember the old, old days, you'll never have those days again, those days are gone. And he's trying to minimize what God is doing now, right here with these people. And he does the same thing today. He wants to extinguish God's work. He wants to extinguish God's flame, no matter how small it is. And here it was beginning as a small little ember in these people's hearts. And he came right in and raised up some people. Wow, this is nothing in comparison to what it was before. Not only can memories be encouragement, also be discouraging, but let me tell you this. If God is working, if God is working, no matter how small it may be, it can never be inferior. It can never be inferior. If God is working, no matter how small it may be, it can never be inferior. It's either God working or he's not working. But if it's God working, no matter how small his work may be, we can't look down on it because it's a work of God. It's the divine plan. It's from the divine sovereign will of God. And we must never despise the day of small things. The fact was that in this case, it was God's will. This was not a license for them to sit back and do nothing. But you see what I'm saying. You see where their hearts are. God is going to bring these good days back. But you know what? They wanted it then. They wanted it now. They couldn't see any progression happening. And the fire of life within them had gradually and slowly begin to fade out because they were discouraged. And here God is trying to reignite it. God is trying to slowly blow his wind upon the little ember of flame in their hearts and in their souls. But all they could do is think back and say, you know what, it's not like the good old days. Let me tell you this, if you get stuck in that kind of thinking, you're in big trouble. I mean, the old days may have been great, But you know what? The old days are not coming back. <laughs> They're gone. You can't bring history back. But what you can do is bring God back. See, they looked back and all they could see was this old temple. But I want you to see that through God, through the prophet Haggai, 
he not only told them that they were looking back, but he said, you know what? You need to look up. That's the second point. They needed an upward look. Look at what it says in verses 4 and 5. It says, yet now be strong. He's encouraging them. Don't be focused backward. Be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Be strong, all the people of the land, declares the Lord. Then he says, work for I am with you. According to the word that I coveted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. What's he saying? He's saying, you know what? Get your eyes off the past and, and begin to look to me. That's what he's telling them. And the first thing he points out to them there in verse 4 is, be strong. They need to, See, when, when, you're, when you're beaten down and you're discouraged, you don't feel strong. You feel weak. You feel intimidated. You feel just overrun by your circumstances. But God is calling them to a task here. Remember the opposition they faced from the past Samaritans? You can go read about it in Ezra chapter 5. There were two men, especially from the Samaritans, who wrote this king and said, hey, they got no right to build the temple. And so they got down, they got discouraged, and they thought, well, we'll just forget about it. Can't do it now. King said, we can't do it. So people were beginning to whine or complain, so. See, it doesn't matter. In our day, we don't have Samaritans. It could be the world. It could be other Christians. It could be opposition within our own church to maybe something that God is laying on your heart to do. I pray that's not the case. And all it takes is a little bit of opposition so many times. Maybe from somebody who can remember the good old times. Maybe you have a ministry you want to start and you bring it up. And, oh, yeah, we used to do that. (laughs) Don't let that discourage you. Don't let that discourage you. Go with the dream that God has put in your heart. But what happened? Darius looked back. King Darius looked back into the records and the archives and he found how King Cyrus had given them a decree to rebuild their temple. And even when they were allowed to build it, they couldn't do it because they were continually looking in the rearview mirror. I'm not saying forget memories. Memories are precious things. Encourage yourself in the past. You know, look back and learn from it. But for goodness sake, don't get anchored there because you're never going to go anywhere. I mean, there's a world today that's our generation. This is a generation, and it's just like the last generation. They're on their way quickly to hell unless they repent and come to Christ. And I mean, I thank God for the preachers who have preached in this church over the years, and thank God for the decisions that were made to follow Christ. Some of you are are a result of that. But some of the people who have gone before us are six feet under. They're not going to do anything with this present generation. 
They can't. Luther's not going to come back and do it. Calvin's not going to do it. Moody's not going to do it. What's that say? We have to do it. We have to have an impact on this, on this local community that God has strategically placed us right here in Redwood City. And I want to ask you, are we doing it? We have to have an upward look. You can't be discouraged in the work of the Lord. You have to be encouraged. And that just means, you know what, it's, it's all about your perspective. See, God wanted them to look up because he wanted to tell them, be strong, and what's he say, and work. Be strong and work. The two come together. Don't be discouraged in work. That's not going to do anybody any good. That's why I asked you earlier, do you have a joy in your heart when you come together with the saints? Are you looking forward to, hey, maybe I can minister to somebody today. Maybe I can help somebody. Maybe I can get plugged into a ministry. Maybe I can come up with God to lay something on my heart. Whatever, be part of God's work in a bigger way. He says, be strong in work. He encouraged them. Remember when uh, Moses in the Old Testament had finished his work and he'd done all that God had told him to do and planned for him to do everything and it was now time to pass the buck to who? To Joshua, right? I mean, can you imagine what Joshua must have felt like? I mean, can you imagine? How am I going to fill this guy's shoes? I mean, we were talking about Moses here. The man that brought the children out of captivity in Egypt. The man of miracles. The man who saw God up on the mount in the burning bush. How can I be like him? Here's what God said to him. What God said to Haggai. What God said to the people. And what God says to you and to me this morning. He says, be strong and of good courage. For what made Moses great will make you great, Joshua. And will make Haggai great and will make us great. And here's why. Because he says, for I, the Lord your God, am with you. He's with us. Do you know that all these Old Testaments, they were just brothers and sisters like, like you and I. Who were used of God. Don't ever forget that. Sometimes we put them on a pedestal. That's beyond any kind of, you know, uh, we could never reach that. No, they were men and women with a heart bent on serving God with all they have. And the only thing that made them great was that they knew their God. And that they knew their God was with them. And was able to do great things through them. Three times God says to Joshua, maybe you needed to hear it three times, I don't know. I am with you, I am with you, I am with you, over and over and over again. And he says it here again in verse 4. He says, Haggai, I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts is a title for God. It means the Lord of armies, the Lord of incredible strength. We're talking about God's presence with us. Do we believe that? I know the people that came up with these plans must have. The people that planted this church, they must have. They must have thought, man, this is something we're going to accomplish for God. You look at all these years later, 
that there's buildings here, that there's people being ministered to, that the word of God is faithfully going out? Why? It's nothing to do with me. It's nothing to do with you. It's a simple fact that God is with us. And we're trying to do what God desires us to do. He shows us that he's there in presence, but he also talks about a promise through the covenant in verse 4. He says, when you came out of Egypt, don't forget, you know, I, I made a promise to you. And he delivered it to them. Then, then and in, in he, he's still there with us now. He says, verse 5, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains what? In your midst. Fear not. If you read through the book of Revelation, you come to the church of Philadelphia in Revelation. And they're described as this, little, having little strength. That's how God describes the book of Philadelphia in the book of Revelation. Having little strength. What does the Lord say, though? That his word and his name were with them and abided with them. I mean, do you understand that as a Christian, we have God with us continually? That we're indwelt with the very Spirit of God? The same Spirit that stirred these people to do the work that they did? The same Spirit that moved Moses to do his stuff and Joshua to do his? No matter what you're going to go through, no matter what it is, it could be illness, it could be financial disaster, it could be family issues, whatever. I want you to know that God's never going to leave you. He's there with you in his fullness. He wants you to cry out to him and to acknowledge him. It's his presence and his power in our life that he wants us to acknowledge. These people not only looked backward and then they looked upward. At the last point, he asked them to look forward. Look forward. Look at what he says in verses 6 to 9. He says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more, in a little while, note that phrase, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations, so that the treasures and all the nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. He talks of prophecies, promises that will come. And he says, you know what? Yeah, I'm with you through all this, but I want to make sure that you understand. In a little while, that little phrase that he uses there, doesn't mean it's going to happen right away. It's not. doesn't mean it's going to happen immediately. But it does mean that it's going to happen imminently. Eventually, it will happen. It's like the return of Jesus Christ. We believe in the imminent return of Jesus Christ. Not the immediate return, or he'd be here. But the imminent return. In other words, it's going to happen. And it could happen at any time. There's nothing that has to happen on earth before Christ returns. 
And he says here, he talks about shaking of the earth and everything that's in the earth and the heavens. That could happen in our time. It could happen right now. Now, what's he talking about here? Some scholars look back to verse 5, and they believe it was when God delivered the people from the land of Egypt. I don't believe that. Some look back at King Darius when he made the edict of the people to allow them to begin to build their temple. I don't believe that either. Some scholars even believe that it's when God brought judgment upon the Persians and then upon the Greeks and eventually upon the Romans and where the Lord was at the time when he was upon the earth and the empire that ruled. I don't think that's either. I think it's something in the future. It's something futuristic. Look back at Zechariah Zechariah chapter 14. Just a couple pages to your right there. Zechariah 14, and and look at verses 4 and 5. Now this is speaking of the Messiah, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, not his first coming, but his second coming. Look at what it says in verses 4 and 5 of Zechariah 14. It says, On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall shall flee to the valley of my mountains, and the valley of the mountains shall reach Azal, and you shall flee as you fled from what? The earthquake in the days of Uzziah the king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. You can read about the same thing in Matthew 24. You can read about it in Revelation chapter 16. Let me just read the portion out of Revelation 16 verses 18 to 20. It says, And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, rumblings peals of thunder, and a great earth, earthquake such as never has been uh, uh, since man on, was on the earth. So great was the earthquake. And the great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great and made her drain the cup of wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. See, there's a day coming, beloved, as we know in the book of Daniel chapter 2, it tells us when a rock will be cut out and, and God will throw that rock, which is Jesus Christ, to smash all the Gentile empires and kings. And Jesus Christ will reign once and for all over all. Now, in Haggai chapter 2, verse 6, it says, now, in a little while. In other words, this could happen at any moment. He's going to shake the heavens. He's going to shake the earth. All this stuff will happen. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says, actually uses two of these verses from Haggai chapter 2, verse 6. Hebrews 12, verse 26, it says, Whose voice then shook, when speaking of the Lord's return, shook the earth, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake the earth only, but also, not only shake the earth, but also heaven. 
So we see this throughout Scripture. And I think it's, it's an important point because it's something that is prophesied that will come, and it could happen at any time. Don't sit here today thinking, oh, you got time, you know, you, you got time to come to Christ. Don't worry about it. No, my friend, you, you, you should turn to Christ now because you don't know when he will return. You don't know when it will be too late. You don't know when your life will be snuffed out. Look at the hope in verse 7 back in Haggai. He says, and I will shake all the nations, but the desire of all nations shall come. What's the desire of all nations? Some people say, oh, it's talking about the millennial temple. May have an inference to that. What's the desire of all nations? Isaiah chapter 2 tells us that the desire of all nations is universal peace. That's what it says. Isaiah tells us again in chapter 11, verse 4, that the desire of all the world is just government. Isaiah also tells us, and the writer to the, uh, in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 11, that the desire of the world, whether they realize it or not, is the knowledge of the true God. It says the world doesn't want our God because they don't believe that he's the true God. See, there's a day coming when the desire of all nations shall come. The Messiah will come to his temple. The Messiah will inhabit the earth. And the glory that is talked about in verse 9, that Shekinah glory, will fill God's temple. In God's world, and all the earth will be filled with the knowledge of God. Can you imagine what an incredible day that will be? you know something? This prophecy has already been fulfilled in some measure because in verse 9 we read that the glory of the latter house shall be greater than the former. What he's saying is, in other words, that this house that was being built at this time, Zerubbabel's temple, the one that they looked down on, he says even though it wasn't dripping with gold like Solomon's temple, God says that that temple is going to have more glory than Solomon. And you say, well, how is that? He's talking about Zerubbabel's temple. He's not referring to the millennial temple. Did you know that Herod's temple, this is interesting, was a refurbished Zerubbabel's temple? And in Luke chapter 2, we read a story where our blessed Lord Jesus Christ, in the form of a baby, was taken into that temple, and the temple saw the desire of all nations as a baby, and Christ came to it. Did he not say that he was greater than even Solomon? Incredible. And he is the greatest. And the greatness of his being filled that temple. And that's what's going to happen in the Millennial Temple. He will fill it with all his glory. God says that he will bring true peace to all the nations. Did the Lord not say that he was the desire of all nations when he spoke in John chapter 7, verse 37 and 38? He said, in the last day, 
And by the way, what we're talking about here in this text is the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. He says, in the last day, that great day of the feast, the same day Jesus stood and cried, saying, if any man thirst, what? Let him come to me and drink. Do you understand what they're, they're seeing here? They're running down to the, the river, filling the little gold canteen with water and bringing it back to the altar and pouring it on it. And Jesus, on the very same day, years later, would say, you know what? I am that living water. Drink of me and you'll never thirst again. Beloved, we need to understand that we are God's temple. God no longer lives in tents or temples made with hands. He doesn't dwell here in this building. He dwells in you and he dwells in me if we're saved. That's what the Bible says. And as we look at this passage of Scripture, three quick things in closing. I want to ask yourself as Christians here today and as the temple of God's Holy Spirit, is he being manifested through your body? in the earth in which we live? Is he being manifested in the way you live your Christian life? Or could Ichabod be written upon your lives? The glory has departed. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 15 to 20 You can read those on your own, but Paul encourages us to take away, like these Eugenians, the rubble, the rubble away from the foundation of the temple, the rubble of sin, the debris that's in our lives. Clear it away. Get rid of it. And then he says in Romans 8.29, secondly, not only is God manifesting your body, ask yourself that question, but he wants us to understand that each of us is a stone in the building. We're so important. But we'll only fit in the building, in God's design, if we're continually being shaped and fashioned and formed into the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. Is that happening in your life on a daily basis? Paul says again in 1 Corinthians 3 that that everything in that building, everything, that means everything in the life of you as a believer must be built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. I want to ask you, how's your building going? (laughs) How's our building going? Are we doing all that God would have us to do with all our might, with all our strength? Do we know that he's with us? As we look at that (laughs) undaunting task, I mean, it's an incredible task that's before us to take the blessed message of the gospel out to a lost and dying world and see souls and hearts Transformed for Christ. Father, we ask this morning that you would make this message personal to us. Each one in this room. Lord, truly these people were discouraged and Haggai came with an encouraging message telling them that God is with them. Fear not. Lord, I pray that whatever we set our 
hands to do. Wouldn't be something that we just think up on our own. I think this is a good idea. I think maybe we should do this. But Father, that we would hear from you first. That we would spend time in prayer. That we would come together and really ask you to divinely show us how we can have a better impact, how we can have a bigger impact here on this peninsula, which so needs to hear your word. No, there's no greater place, really. You've strategically placed us here among just the armpit of sin, really. But we have a message of hope. We have a message of forgiveness. And so many of us of our lives have been touched and transformed by your, your grace. And Lord, we pray this morning that you would help us not to lose heart, but to be encouraged. And Father, we thank you, and we pray that you would just go before us in all these things. And I pray for those who have yet to maybe commit their lives to you. Lord, I pray that you would make it a real, a real decision that they have to come to. Lord, that they would realize this isn't just some spirit up in the sky. But Father, you're a real person, and that you desire a real relationship. And Father, we ask that you would just move and work in the hearts of everyone here this morning. We pray that we do all that we can to further your gospel for the cause of Christ in your glory. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.